At the time, my chairman said, you're either a genius or barking mad. I don't like safe options. I don't like safety nets. I like the thrill. If I win, I want to truly win big. Hi, I'm Jack Cohen. I work at Entrepreneur First, talking to talented and ambitious people, trying to work out if they have the raw materials it takes to start a company from scratch. The people who build important companies have a reason why they build them. They have something inside them that means they're going to succeed over everyone else working on the same problem. If we can understand what this something is, we can spot outliers before their ambitions have even been realized. Welcome to 21st Century Alchemy, a show that looks at the raw materials that make up the best entrepreneurs. Our guest this episode, Rashid Mansour. Hi, I'm uh, Rashid Mansour. He is the CEO and co-founder of Hadian. The word Hadian describes the birth of geological time. It's when the Earth was formed. And now this is a pretty huge concept to name a company after. So what does this company do? Hadian is the next great operating system. Today, the need to run single programs on vast numbers of machines is becoming a necessity. Machine learning, artificial intelligence, the scientific problems like modeling the climate, modeling the genome. These problems require a very different approach. They require vast numbers of computers analyzing data. For example, if you really wanted to understand the causes of rare genetic diseases, sequencing and aligning vast numbers of genomes and then studying how the commonalities between them, studying how subsequences of genes and so on might express and yield various different types of illnesses, to really get at the heart of these and to solve these problems. Today, it takes man millennia of effort of people being thrown at just one problem, say one type of cancer. Imagine if you could come up with these models and run them independent of the size. You could have one person with the right science or insight or a team of scientists with the right insight do the pure science research and run at the speed of science, not at the speed of the engineering bottleneck that constrains them. The bottleneck to solving that large class of problems today is the ability to write an algorithm on my laptop and then run it, whether it's on 10 machines, on 100, on 1,000 or a million machines, without needing a massive engineering team and human effort behind it. What we've done is we've leveled the playing field on that front. One individual can do what took Google's engineering teams the last 20 years of effort. So Hayden is a really ambitious idea, but for Rashid, it's only just the beginning. I think if there were one word to describe me, and this might sound self-serving, but I'm a polymath. I like many different fields. I'm, not, I'm never kind of driven and led by one area. To be honest, there are lots of companies I'm interested in, but I have a 30-year plan, and this is a problem I need to solve or see solved in the next 10 years for the rest of the plan to come to fruition. I would like to see aging cured. That's one of the foundational problems for me. You can defy your age. You all curious about this? Yeah! Unbelievable I would like to advance robotics to another level, and I think the future evolution for us is a brain-computer interface and, in fact, an entirely robotic body. 
but one that functions similar to the Terminator. I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. An interesting area that I would like to also work on is de-extinction, maybe starting with mammoths and other And places. what would be really interesting is to see Jurassic Park made real, build the park, essentially. But I can see how I would, there's no chance I'll raise investment for this, so I'll have to self-fund this at some point in the future. I'm fairly confident it'll work as long as Hadean exists. So Rashid, going back to the very basics, the fundamentals, you grew up in Sri Lanka. What are your family like? So I have two brothers and a sister, and they're they, they, they were all interesting to grow up with because my family, we often would have lots of discussions and philosophical debates. And sitting under the starry sky, we would go back and forth on various uh, topics and argue and so on. And I think the, those things helped. And my father took a lot of time to teach me when I was much younger. And my grandfather, now that I remember, he was really well-educated and uh, well-spoken. And he had an incredible library. He had some of the first Tintin books. I really loved reading Tintin. We all loved reading Tintin growing up because he had like the, the really old, the original, published, like they were torn and all that. What was it like growing up in Sri Lanka? Really hot. And I was never a fan of the heat. I actually prefer when it's about 18 degrees, that's my optimal. But I love the diversity of wildlife there. You could go out into the woods and the forests and there's always stuff out there. So that was very interesting and it kind of sparked, I guess, an interest in zoology as a child, which I spent a lot of time studying. And that eventually morphed into paleontology, which has nothing to do with trillions into dinosaurs. I ended up detailing lots of information in something like four books on dinosaurs when I was around seven to ten. And I wanted to grow up to be a paleontologist. This led me to read Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. And in Jurassic Park, there was this character called Ian Malcolm, who you might know him. He's played by Jeff Goldblum in the movie, but in the book, he's so much more interesting. He's a chaos theorist. He's a mathematician. The book, Jurassic Park, is more about the philosophical implications of chaos theory and how that could unfold in the park. It's very, very interesting. The Tyrannosaur uh, doesn't have any set patterns or, or, or park schedules. It's the essence uh, of chaos. It's still not clear on chaos. Chaos theory is the study of unpredictability in the natural world, uh, of lifelike systems, of complex systems, and so on. It's the theory that underpins understanding all of that in a mathematical way. That got me into wanting to study mathematics eventually. See, here I am now by myself, uh, uh, talking to myself. That's, that's chaos. And so you're, you're 10, you're reading about chaos theory. Were you top of the class in school? Was this you pushing ahead? Were you thriving academically? I wasn't thriving at all in school. I skipped one third of you know, school. So 33% absent. I had other interests that I would pursue. I would read stuff. I, I just hated school. I hated the stuff they were teaching me. And I was much more interested in my own self-directed learning as opposed to what the subjects were teaching me. I found both the approach to teaching 
uninspiring, but also the content uninspiring. But I think there is also something about rule breaking. There was something I saw recently. It was a paper or an article which said that people who follow rules tend to rarely become entrepreneurs, for example. And I think that is true. And also it makes sense from the perspective of optimization theory, because what following rules helps you do is it helps you eliminate extremes, both bad and good. And I've never been a big fan of being conservative. I've always been extreme one way or the other. What did your classmates think of you? Was it was it usual for them to have this weird truant that is genius in, in some areas but gets mid-ranking? And I didn't have a lot of friends. I had a few very good friends and I wouldn't have survived school if it weren't for them, I think. The others were, I guess they thought I was quite weird. I didn't care. Uh, I thought they were really uninteresting for the most part. I'm like how shallowly and easily they were amused by things that I found to be quite weird and strange. But I remember recently I went back to Sri Lanka and there was one of my friends who I knew from school. She was saying, you know, the stuff you used to be interested in when you were, you know, in school. Well, you know, we were talking about this the other day and we're all into that kind of stuff now. But back then, like that was way too early. <laughs> You got into some big stuff early on. Why do you think that was? For me, a field of study has to be inspiring in some sense to be interesting. I can't just study something if I don't connect it to something broader. There has to be a deeper reason for me to do anything. And that was absent in just the curriculum that you're given when you're at school. You're just asked to learn X, Y, and Z. But unless I can relate to one piece of it, it's not, it's not that interesting. You said that earlier that the other kids thought you were weird, maybe. Do you think you're weird? I, I do realise that I'm not completely normal in the sense that I'm not. But isn't everyone who's not average weird? There's a spectrum of behaviours. And if you are not distributed around the mean in some ways, you're probably not distributed around the mean in your behaviours. And that can be true on any front. Do you think you were just bored as a child? I was the kind of child who would easily get bored, but I grew up with enough content around me, both nature and books and things like that, that I always kept myself occupied and interested. What stage in this did computers enter your life? Oh, so it was around the age of 10, actually. It was around the time I read Jurassic Park. I did get exposure to computers a little bit before that, but I didn't have one at home. So I had a friend, he had a computer, and I spent a lot of time at his place going over stuff and learning and programming. And we would always try to do something original with it, like break the rules of the matrix, so to speak. What do you mean by that? So getting the computer to do things it wasn't meant to. For example, back then, both the computers my this guy had, it was Salji, uh, we had two megabytes of RAM, two megabytes. Certain games like Doom and Lion King required four, but there was a way of getting more advanced operating systems to appear to have more memory than they actually do. And through a lot of hard work, 
trick Windows into opening a DOS virtual machine where it thinks that there's more memory than there actually is. And we managed to run a 4MB game on two megabytes. How are you learning this? How are you working out what this is? There were no books. There weren't many people who knew stuff and there was no internet at this time. So this was before the internet. So it was mostly experimentation, hypothesis, test the hypothesis, reinforces the hypothesis, expand on that, you know, come out with other new intuition, test, learn, adjust. The scientific method, I suppose, without fully being aware of it in its uh, proper form. So at this stage, you probably just left school and got a job. Did you try and make money out of this or anything? So I used to write software when I was 12 and uh, software for businesses and uh, sell it. But it was hard to sell because you're a 12 year old kid trying to sell software. That's just crazy. But uh, it was, I had to work with my brother on this because my brother was five years older than me and he had more credibility. But then he would want too much of a cut. So I'd be like, no, and then do it myself. Did the love of dinosaurs and computers ever combine? Yes. So I built simulations of dinosaurs. Salji and I, we worked on a simulation. What we wanted to do was model dinosaurs, model a dinosaur ecosystem, and then accelerate it and understand how extinction happens. And I gathered a huge amount of data, mostly like physics calculations based on dinosaur skeletal structures and so on, on their speed, rate of acceleration, energy requirements, all of this stuff. And I had quite a body of work that I then took to him and I was like, let's start modeling this and maybe we'll get our PhDs even before we've gone to university because it'll be so original. How old are you then? I was 11 at the time. So this is still when you're 11, you're you're aiming to try and get a PhD in modeling dinosaurs. (laughs) Did Did you succeed? We didn't because computers at the time were just not powerful enough to accelerate through millions of years of geological time, hundreds of millions of years to see what the outcome would be. But I built a far more simplified model when I was 15. And that led to some interesting insights into why extinction occurs. That was work I sort of repeated later on. I wanted to publish papers on it, but I then always got pulled into this startup thing that I do on the side. So, (laughs) Rashid got through school and age 19 began teaching people almost the same age as himself. After a brief stint at university in Sri Lanka, he relocated to the UK to study electrical engineering and computer science. Though he would later start a PhD, it would seem he felt the same apathy towards academic study. So at university, I did everything but pure maths for my degree. But I was very interested in pure maths and I did a lot of study on my own. I did electrical engineering, computer science, mechanical engineering. I ended up finding the computer science boring because I had really learned everything that was interesting and everything they were teaching me was boring. The electrical engineering was quite interesting because circuits and going deep into microelectronics was fascinating in a whole new dimension. But the mathematics was still very ordinary. That is because most of engineering and even physics is mathematics from all the way from the 16th to the 19th century, whereas pure maths is 20th century mathematics or 21st century mathematics. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. 
With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. And that was the stuff I was interested in. And wrongly, because I didn't have guidance, I thought I would study those topics in engineering and physics. In hindsight, that was silly. And I am far more bold now than I perhaps used to be. Andrew Wiles tried to prove Fermat's last theorem. He's a professor at Oxford. He spent nine years on it, and he succeeded. Where I was sitting here, this desk, when suddenly, totally unexpectedly, I had this incredible revelation. When he talks about the proof for a documentary, he starts crying because it's such a moving emotional experience. It was the most, uh, the most important moment of my working life. That's what mathematics gives you. It's very binary, but to solve a mathematical problem, major one, is incredible. Nothing I ever do again will. So it's deeply fulfilling. And mathematical proofs are beautiful in a way that art and music can never be. Uh, there are other mathematicians who've talked about it, Bertrand Russell, G.H. Hardy. There is almost a sublime, pure beauty to them. And that can only be held in your mind. For my undergraduate engineering degree, my final year project, I did a lot of mathematical research and to the point where it stopped looking like engineering, but there was a reason for that. The mathematics for what I wanted to do in engineering didn't exist, at least not in the applied sense. The pure mathematics existed to understand that space, but the applied aspect, the theoretical aspect of it didn't exist. So I worked on developing that and I almost failed because the examining board said to my supervisor that this isn't engineering. And he kind of defended my thesis on the grounds that it could be applied to engineering. They ended up giving me an award for it, but I almost failed that project. Why do you think that the supervisor backed you? Oh, because he was a massive fan of my work, because he was saying throughout that the work you're doing is very fundamental research. He said not a lot of people do this anymore. People tend to do non-risky research, research for which when they set out, they have a fairly good idea of what the result could be. When I embarked on my research project, I didn't know where that was going to lead. So he said, this is very, very pure, very fundamental research. But that's the only thing that's ever interested me. Even for my PhD, my research was very fundamental. So I remember my supervisor doing a research assessment uh, when I did my write-up in the end. He ticked off on the research exercise, there was zero to five star. And for every one of them, he was like, so you're either going to di discover something truly extraordinary or you're going to utterly fail. So I'm not sure what to tick here. And then he ticked off five star on all of them. I guess there's something I'm seeing here, which is that when you're kind of 11 years old, you have your cousin that is backing you to try and get a PhD before you've got a PhD. When you're doing your undergrad, you're doing something where most people don't think it really works, but someone's really backing you to do it. Do you think that this is kind of a theme in your life. Are you believing something isn't possible and having to find other people that believe in you? Absolutely. So I'm high variance. 
What, what do you mean by high variance? The outcomes can go one way or the other. I could either, just exactly like what my supervisor explained, I could either get a five-star do incredible groundbreaking fundamental research or I can utterly fail. And I favor those. I, it's not boring. That's exciting. You could completely change something in a very fundamental way or you can crash and burn. I'm happy with those odds. Like if I win, I want to truly win big. I don't like safe options. I don't like safety nets. I, I like the thrill. It sounds like you, at various stages of life, were really kind of excelling above your station. What are you bad at? Singing. <laughs> and it's something I've spent a lot of time on. <laughs> What's your, like, go-to karaoke song? Probably The Blaze of Glory by Bon Jovi or Bed of Roses. I, I actually don't know that one. Bed of Roses. How, how, like, I genuinely don't know that song. <laughs> Are you asking me to sing? I mean, it would be nice if, if like, I don't know. Um, okay. Let me try. This is laughing material. Cause a bottle of vodka still lodged in my head and some blonde gave me nightmares. Think that she's still in my bed. As I, As I dream, dream about movies they won't make of me when I'm Rashid would go on to pursue his love of mathematics, making it the focus of his PhD studies. So for my PhD, I declared that this is going to be mathematical research. I call it applied maths, but the maths itself was very pure. It seemed he was finally thriving, but still his ambitions were bigger than this. So I've always had expensive tastes, and I don't think I could be quite satisfied with a life in academia. But I founded my first startup at the time. Uh, we were doing really well. That's one thing. The other thing is I realized that there are many other problems I want to solve. What I can do is get to a point where I can work on lots of hard problems by having teams of people who can kind of follow that vision and the strategy and that I can lay down. So I would rather try and get to that point than put everything in this one basket where I'm working on one research problem and I'm ultimately limited by my own limitations as an individual. So it was the mathematically optimal choice. The startup Rashid referred to there was AdBrain. He started this through Entrepreneur First, having applied on the recommendation of a university friend, Jason Harjo Sakatmo, who had later become one of the co-founders of Hadian. So I met Rashid in an electrical engineering class. What I realized was that he could articulate very clearly his theory and ideas to a layperson, and that made it possible to bridge sort of the knowledge and genius that he has into an everyday business. I think that academia was too narrow for him, and so at the time I wanted to connect Rashid to a source of infrastructure that would allow him to raise finance and grow his company, like an investment community. It was after about two years of building AdBrain that Rashid observed problems scaling algorithms. I observed this problem firsthand both during building AdBrain and during my PhD. And therefore resolved that first he needed to fix this before anything else. For me, timing was everything. There were many aspects and things happening in the industry. There were certain predictions I made, which at the time AdBrain's chairman said that you're either a genius or bark you're barking mad. And they came to be realized. With the timing now being completely right, 
he co-founded Hadian. So I met Alec Mokata, my co-founder on EF. He at the time was doing something called Domini, where he had built a sort algorithm, which was faster than UCSD's research team. He's an extraordinarily good programmer, and um, he's very much about that kind of bottom-up approach and so on and so forth. He tends to spend most of his time coding, which he really, really enjoys. He's also very critical of most programmers and even the programmers, most programmers hold up like Google engineers and so on. So Alec and I came together. We decided we were going to do this. Jason moved here from Singapore. He had a job there. He quit, moved here with $100,000 to kind of get us off the ground. What made it easy for me to join was that when you have problems this large, it's inevitable that people will try to solve them. And so the solution is inevitable. The question is who will actually solve them. I think the three of us realized that it was the right time to address it based on the data points that we saw. We spent a lot of time getting things right and then, you know, hiring um, and started scaling up. What does success look like to you? Success looks like building a $100 billion company. And I think we have every ability to do that with Hadian. For me, that's a good milestone. Do you think you're on your way? Yeah, I think I'm on the best trajectory possible to get there. Hadian is very fundamental work. We are so well aligned and pointed in the right direction. We're solving precisely the right problem. Every prediction we've made in the last two years, they're increasingly starting to come true, which means that our intuition for the future, our positioning is correct. We are early. We're not too early. We are early enough that we have a massive advantage over everyone from small startups to giants like Google, Microsoft, Oracle, Amazon. Who's working with you at the moment? We're working with Azure, Microsoft, and Oracle as partnerships. And very, very interesting stuff happening. We will, we've also been invited to present at Oracle's Open World event, which we're very excited about. We're working on a tech demo. At the moment, my co-founder is right now with the team busy working on that and a couple of other things in the genomic space. We are going to wow the world in October. So this is the stuff, computing history being rewritten. And is anyone else working on this right now? So what's interesting is that now HPE has announced that it's working on solving scalability. But the difference is HPE has built a new computer architecture and they're telling you to buy a new computer. And they're saying, if you buy our computer, problems on this computer will scale to any size. And our discovery is you can solve the problem by building an operating system. And that operating system can run anywhere. It can run on all the big clouds. So you don't have to go out and buy a new computer. It sounds like what you're doing reminds me exactly of you, age 11, trying to make Doom and the Lion King work on your computer when it should run only with four megawatts and you've only got two megawatts around. But now what you're doing is you're not running the Lion King, you're solving some of the biggest problems. Yes, I suppose in terms of, uh, this, is, this sounds impossible, let's do it. Problems that appear on the surface are very interesting because I think what too many startups try to do is they pick problems where the part of the solution looks reasonably easy. But someone said this to me, someone who worked for Larry Page, that Larry Page used to tell them, if you feel that your idea has competition, you're not thinking big enough. Because when your idea is truly huge, there's no competition. So Rashid, you've had Many different pursuits, many different love affairs with different ideas. Is Hadian the one? Yes, I've had many pursuits and 
the reason I believe that Hadean will keep my attention is because in the past I've had to do things that I'm not that excited about, but I, I was doing it for the second order effects, like building a startup because it's going to make me rich or building a startup because it's going to get me the credibility to do the thing I really want to do. But at some point I decided I'm just going to do what I really want to do. I'm not going to do something because of the second order effect. I'm going to do something because it is my core purpose. And Hadean is a core purpose. I believe in purpose. Everyone who works at Hayden is aligned. For them, this is a labor of love. In the profoundest, truest sense, people often, you know, they, they talk about how, oh, we're working for this funky, trendy food delivery startup and we love it. They don't really. Because if you ask them, if you had $100 billion in cash and you could do anything you wanted, is this what you would be doing? And invariably, the answer will be no. In my case, it is exactly what I will be doing, except on a bigger scale. Because the only thing that is going to make me stop doing this is if this were already done. Because everything else I want to do is just as exciting, but it is contingent on this existing. So everything I work on from now is going to involve doing things that I'm personally motivated. But it's, it's about feeling the purpose in terms of what I want to do. I think Steve Jobs called it putting a ding in the universe. Well, that could have been someone else, but desire to want to do that. Building a company is really hard. And having a purpose that is really big and really important to you makes it not easier, but worthwhile. And that's why it's so important to find something that is really, really good. I think Rashid is someone that has had loads of different interests. He's like, in his own words, a polymath. And that sometimes means that you can be really split and pulled in different directions. And I think what he's found is something that unifies that all together, that is top priority for him, that if you can solve that, then you can unlock all these other interesting things. Getting that purpose, getting that focus can be so valuable because it channels all your energy in one sustained, fantastic direction. So it seems like you're in a pretty good place right now. Is there anything you feel like you missed out on? I've had to make sacrifices, mostly on the personal front, I think. I mean, ultimately, this search comes first and everything else has been secondary, including a personal life to a degree. I have, I'm single, whereas most of my friends from school are already married and have children. That said, I'm not in a hurry because I'm going to live to be several hundred years old. So I don't have a biological clock. This podcast was brought to you by Entrepreneur First and Radio Wolfgang. It features me, Jack Owen, talking to Rashid Mansour and contributions from Jason Harjo-Sukatmo. The executive producer was Harry Watson and the producers were L. Scott and Ivor Manley.